Hello. My name is Tom King. I am a recovering control freak. <laughs> I have been controlling free for the last 24 minutes. My family will testify that I'm the one who controls the checkbook. I'm the one who must fill out the tax forms. I'm the one who must stay up late and lock the doors after the girls come home at night. I am the one who must retrieve the mail from the mailbox. I'm the one who must drive the car. I'm the one who must feed the fish. I'm the one who must ratify all final decisions. And I'm the one who governs the remote control. <laughs> now, I'm sure that Dr. Lambright has other more accurate clinical terms to describe such behavior. But my family has chosen to identify me as a control freak. I recently looked up the definition in a dictionary for the word dominion. The word is defined by such terms as control, rule, and sovereignty. I suppose when my children recognize my tendency to rule their lives and to try to control every circumstance which I encounter, they may just as well refer to me as a dominion freak. In our society, we have developed a number of powerful weapons by which we exert our control over people and circumstances. In our youth, we wield speed and strength to overcome others who are less able. In our older years, we exercise wit and wisdom to verbally assault those less clever. We gather wealth and possessions which enable us to rise above the status of others. An example of this drive to assert ourselves appeared in a newspaper article a few years ago. The article records the following report. A young man and an elderly woman rushed for the same parking space on a downtown lot Thursday, and there were no winners. The young man managed to slip his car into the space ahead of his competitor, prompting the woman to ask, Why did you do this to me? Because I'm young and quick, the man replied, according to the police reports. But when the man returned to his car, he found the woman still behind the wheel of her vehicle, and his car had been rammed several times. Why did you do this, the man asked her. Because I'm old and rich, the police report says, she responded. <laughs> My concern is that an approach to life that centers around such a thirst for domination over others seems to run contrary to that which God has revealed is lasting. The eternal inheritance of the kingdom of God comes to those who follow a different path. A vision related by the prophet Daniel illustrates this truth. As I read the vision recorded in Daniel 7, we need to keep in mind the character of a vision. Recall that a vision needs to be seen, not just heard or read. So I encourage you to see the vision. There are three distinct scenes in this vision, and I encourage you to, to see each of them as I read Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 
Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. This beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn. A little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel... My spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for all ages to come.
Our society's fascination with and lust for power and control is not unique in history. The beasts depicted in the vision of Daniel 7 present graphic images of ancient nations battling for dominance over each other. Information from the larger context of the book of Daniel leads to the common conclusion that these beasts were meant to represent the ancient kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. These four successive empires ruled the lives of the Judeans over the 6th through the 2nd centuries B.C. And as is true for many power-hungry nations throughout history, these beastly kingdoms waged battles resulting in all the atrocities and devastation associated with war. Accordingly, the vision pictures one beast having its wings plucked, another with three ribs hanging from its teeth, presumably torn out of another animal, and another beast is described as devouring, crushing, and trampling the rest. The last beast is described with ten horns, three of which are yanked out by the roots. Even in our age of special effects, this literary scene is gruesome. As reflected through these images of devouring, crushing, trampling, ribs hanging from teeth, and horns torn out by the roots, likely tearing the skull as they're removed. These are depictions of body parts being extracted, likely with the accompanying issue of blood and the tearing of muscle and sinew. You know, as a young boy, I would have been attracted to the Old Testament a lot sooner if I had known it had such cool stuff in it. But these are appropriate images for the pictures of violence, of conquest, and domination. For ancient Judah, the terrifying final beast, understood to represent Greece, was among the worst for the Jews. The eleven horns which appear on its head are considered representative of eleven kings associated with the Seleucid Empire, which ruled over Palestine during the latter part of the Greek age. The last Seleucid king, represented by the final little horn, was the most dangerous. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The name itself rings power. Antiochus inflicted great persecution and ruin upon the Jews and their valued possessions. He forcefully promoted Greek culture along with the worship of Greek gods. Thus Jews were threatened to deny their faith or risk torture and death. The beasts of Daniel's vision, the nations that they represented, and the struggle for dominion confronted the people of Judah with two related dilemmas. First, the immediate need for survival. And second, the issue of whether or not to join the ongoing battle for dilemmas in the world. Both dilemmas ultimately lead to the question of how best to secure life. Some Jews in that day chose to participate in the world of Antiochus. They bribed Greek officials to gain positions of leadership over fellow Jews. They adopted Greek gods at the expense of the laws and instructions of the one true God who created the universe. With such actions, the Jews reflected their own version of beastly behavior. 
Such a vision, with the history that it reflects, seems so removed from our world. Or is it? Perhaps the beasts of Daniel's vision have simply taken on new forms as the struggle that they represent continues. The lust and greed and pride and selfishness and fear which motivated the nations of the ancient world are still among us. We begin as children fighting over toys. We progress to a variety of forms of insult and injury and too often develop into veiled beasts struggling to secure our own position and prestige above those around us. The gender stereotypes of our race reflect aspects of our struggle for dominion. The tough guy image of the macho man who threatens and intimidates the seductive image of the beguiling and crafty female who deceives and manipulates. Whether such stereotypes are true or not, we all have our means of domination. Throughout life, we develop an arsenal of attitudes and actions and resources which enable us to rule the world around us with some sense of personal satisfaction. The philosophy of big business in our culture provides perfect illustrations of the human drive for domination through such expressions as, it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a jungle out there. You have to scratch and claw your way to the top, and you have to step on others as you climb the ladder of success. And consider how we're attracted to those characters who display great power over their own realm. You recall the popularity of the 80s drama Dallas? Its popularity was largely due to the sovereignty which the corrupt yet commanding J.R. Ewing held over his oil-rich empire. Another captivating character can be seen in Josiah Bartlett, who reigns as President of the United States in the West Wing. His superiority is reflected in the unswerving loyalty of his faithful minions. And consider the generations of Trekkies who have been gripped by the commanding presence of the reigning captains of powerful starships. Janeway, Cisco, Picard, all of whom appear spineless and pale in comparison to the infamous James Tiberius Kirk, <laughs> who strikes fear even in the hearts of monstrous Klingons. You have to confess there's something thrilling about mentally projecting ourselves into the positions of such authoritarian characters. And yet, where does the struggle lead? Does a philosophy of life characterized by such powers secure a lasting kingdom? Before we see what happens to the beasts in Daniel 7, and gain some insight to these questions, the vision shifts to a different scene. This new scene appears in dramatic contrast to the scene of the battling beasts. The second scene in this vision centers around one identified as the Ancient of Days. The very title suggests an enduring and permanent character. In contrast to the beasts who come and go as they trample each other, 
The picture we are given of the Ancient of Days depicts a dominion which is already established. There's no struggle, no battle, no fighting in this scene. Yet it is the epitome of recognized dominion. Thousands upon thousands attend this one. Myriads upon myriads stand before this one. In the midst of this serene yet powerful image, we discover the fate of the beasts. The one with the horn is slain, its body destroyed, given to the fire. The remaining beasts were appointed an extension of life, but their dominion is taken away. The contrast between these first two scenes in the vision is striking. In the first, we see vicious beasts engaged in gruesome combat, striving for a domination which never truly emerges. And in the second scene, we witness an enduring dominion, yet with no needs for weapons or violence. This dominion is so overwhelming, it simply snatches away the rule of the beast and holds their fate and existence in its hands. The vision clearly portrays the beastly approach to life does not lead to victory or to fulfillment. After developing such strength, gathering such weaponry, exercising such force, all their dominion is simply taken in a moment, without struggle. As history repeatedly demonstrates, nations ambitious for ruling over others always end in destruction. Babylon was taken by the Medes and Persians, Greece overthrew Persia, and eventually Rome overpowered Greece. Daniel's vision reveals to the children of Israel the greater reality of a completely different empire, that is, the kingdom of God. It is not just a forecast of the future. It's a revelation of present reality. The vision calls its viewers to align themselves with the Ancient of Days and commit their way to the God of the universe. The scene shifts once again in Daniel's vision and focuses on one coming in the clouds. And to this one is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. To this one, all peoples and nations are given in service. We're told in the vision that this one's dominion is everlasting and this one's kingdom will not be destroyed. The picture is once again in stark contrast to the scene of the beasts. The one who comes in the clouds is described with no weapons, no vicious claws or teeth, and no boastful horns. This one simply floats down in the clouds and is presented before the Ancient of Days. It is to this one, without the trappings of the world's power, to whom is given eternal dominion. In this vision, the children of Judah and those of us here today are confronted with two images with life-threatening or life-giving implications. The first suggests that we might align ourselves with the power of the beasts. And yet we're all too familiar with this way of life which seeks to dominate others. 
We know that the self-centered power game leads to destruction and ultimately death. Property is damaged, friends are lost, families are divided, and people are killed. The other image which the vision, with which the vision confronts us is simply that of one who comes in the clouds. The vision only identifies this one like a son of man. A brief investigation of this phrase, son of man, lends insight to the impact of the image. In the vision itself, this one, like the son of man, is certainly depicted in some relationship to divinity. He comes with the clouds of heaven and is presented before the Ancient of Days. Ancient Jewish writings outside of the Bible also refer to a son of man. In these writings, he's described as a judge over the nations and one who brings destruction to evil ones. Again, this reflects a position in relationship to divinity. And yet it's significant. He's not referred to as son of God or Lord, but rather like a son of man. In the Old Testament itself, outside of Daniel, the phrase Son of Man is used often as a parallel to man or humanity. And in addition, the phrase is used numerous times to address the human prophet Ezekiel. Thus it appears in the Old Testament itself, Son of Man predominantly refers to a human. Accordingly, the image of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 reflects the path of a human-like being in submission to the Spirit of God. Now, when we consider the information of the Gospels in the New Testament, a further revelation unfolds. In the Gospels, as you recall, Jesus is called Son of David, Messiah, Christ, Son of God. Against the beasts of His day, such as Roman oppressors and corrupt religious leaders, Jesus had all the advantages. He was God incarnate born of the Holy Spirit, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, one through whom all things were created, the very Word of God who became flesh, the ultimate fulfillment of God's Messiah, the Son of God of whom the psalmist says He will break rebellious kings with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Given such circumstances, we expect Jesus to claim these titles, Son of David, Son of God, Messiah, Christ, God incarnate. And yet, an investigation of the Gospels reveals that Jesus consistently refers to Himself not by these titles, but as Son of Man. For those whose point of reference was the authoritative Hebrew Scriptures, Daniel 7 would stand out in relation to this title, Son of Man. Jesus aligns Himself with the image of one like a Son of Man coming in the clouds and presented before the Ancient of Days. Like the image in Daniel 7, Jesus came with no weapons, no vicious claws or teeth, and no boastful horn as an extension of the one who submits himself to the Ancient of Days, Jesus teaches his followers to love God and neighbor, to care for the needy, to turn the other cheek, to pick up a cross, to recognize they're blessed when others hate and ostracize and insult them for the sake 
of the Son of Man. In dramatic contrast to the beasts of Daniel 7, Jesus exemplified and taught a way of life for others, not battling against them. Jesus provides a living image of the Son of Man and the way to the eternal kingdom of God. For the children of Judah and for those of us here today, this is the image to which we are called to align ourselves. It is an image which relates to us because it reflects humanity. It is an image which, in contrast to the way of violence and destruction, comes in peace and submission before the Ancient of Days. Such a path is mentioned in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. As she exalts the Lord, she proclaims that it is the Lord who guards the faithful ones and cuts off the wicked, for not by might does one prevail. In other words, might and power don't prosper the faithful, and might and power don't overcome the wicked, but rather the Lord God takes care of such concerns. This same way is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 4, when the prophet brings the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the leader of Judah during the rebuilding of the temple after the exile in Babylon. And the prophet Haggai had already pointed to Zerubbabel as the next Davidic king. And the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel was simply this, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This served as a reminder to Zerubbabel that the character of leadership in Judah must be in submission to God's spirit not military might. When we consider modern examples to follow, Mother Teresa stands in stark contrast to the Ewings and Bartlett's and Kirk's of our world. The life of Mother Teresa, who along with her sisters of mercy, sacrificially cared for the destitute and dying in Calcutta, provides a modern picture of submission and trust in God. Her attitude of servanthood was reflected on the day that humans first conquered the moon. In the midst of the excitement, on the day when a human first walked on the moon, Mother Teresa was asked if she thought she would ever go to the moon. And her selfless reply was this, If there are poor and unwanted people on the moon, I will surely take my sisters there. Her ambitions were clearly driven by the opportunity to give and not to take. Living a life like Jesus, the Son of Man, means refusing to join in the power game focused on self over others. Even when facing death after being arrested, humiliated, beaten, and nailed to the cross, Jesus refused to participate in the beastly struggle by striking back with heavenly hosts or fire from heaven or earthquakes or other manifestations of divine muscle. He could have added to the death and destruction of that day by crying out, Father, destroy them, for they know not with whom they are dealing. Instead, we read that He spoke the words, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. After enduring the cross and completing a life characterized by love and submission to God, Jesus was raised from the dead and dominion has been given to Him. God highly exalted Him so that at His name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way of the Son of Man, characterized by servanthood, giving, and submission to God, was not defeated or snatched away like the power of the beasts. Rather, Jesus is still alive, and His kingdom endures forever. We're confronted with a choice of how we are going to live our lives. We can pursue the battles and struggles of competing with the rest of the world in securing dominance over others and building our own little empires at home and work and school. Or we can follow in the path which leads to submission to God, loving God and neighbor, giving and sacrifice, living for others rather than against them. This latter way leads to the everlasting kingdom. It is victorious because it is supported and empowered by the creator of the universe, the ancient of days, who holds the power of life and death and resurrection. Let us submit our way to him.